Hey there, my name is Art Wright, and my pronouns are he, him, and I'm the pastor here at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. We're so glad that you're tuning in. This uh, is a congregation that has been in life and ministry now for about 195 years here in the heart of downtown Williamsburg, and we couldn't be more thrilled that uh, here in the year 2023 that we are small but vibrant and growing and that you're listening in. It is such a gift to be able to connect in this way and to find ways to um, be church even in spite of geographic barriers or time constraints or whatever it is. And so we really are glad that you're tuning in and especially to this sermon because we were delighted this past Sunday to welcome back the Reverend Dr. Megan fullerton Strollo. Megan is not a stranger to us. She's a friend. She traveled with us to the Holy Land uh, in May of 2022. She teaches right up the road at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia as professor of biblical languages. And um, she preached for us back in January on uh, Remembrance of Baptism Sundays. And so we were excited to get her back in the pulpit to share about something that she is an expert on, uh, and that's the book of Ruth. And so she preached in worship, we read um, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 22, and then chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Uh, You could probably just read the whole book in one sitting. Ruth is a delightful short story, but Megan does a great job covering the broad contours of the story in her sermon as well. And um, her sermon, I think, resonated uh, very deeply with many of us uh, as we reflect on what it means to be people of faith. Uh, and And just as we think of the fact that life is complicated and emotions are complicated and our relationship with God is complicated, and those are things that churches don't often do a great job acknowledging. And so I was really appreciative for the ways in which Megan opened up new ways of understanding and in a way that really speaks to who we are striving to be as a congregation, a community of faith in the year 2023, and a way that's very honest about what it means to be human. And so I hope that it'll be a blessing to you too. You can find more about us uh, at williamsburgbaptist.com. You can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook. We really are glad you're listening. God bless. Thank you for the invitation back. It's good to be here. All right. It is midterm time at Union Presbyterian Seminary, so I've prepared a pop quiz for you. Tell me what all of these have in common. Jane Eyre. Dracula. Emma. Matilda. Hamlet, Harry Potter. Any guesses? Classics? British. That was unintentional. These are all book titles named after their main character. So if you were thinking it but not saying it, well done. This trend of naming books after main characters is so common, and it's an old practice, so old, in fact, it's biblical. 
titular characters, they're called. Give us someone to focus on in the story, someone to follow, so to speak, through the narrative. We assume that the books will be about them, or perhaps told from their perspective so. Harry Potter books follow the story of, you guessed it, Harry Potter. Now, one of my favorite books is by Daphne du Maurier. It's called Rebecca. And I give complete credit to my 10th grade English teacher who introduced me to this one. But it tells the story of a young woman, seemingly shy and reticent at first, but in fact, quite brave, persistent, loyal. She is, as we might say in Hebrew, a real woman of worth, an eshet chayil. That'll come up again later. But here's the thing, though. The woman, this main character, is never named in the book. Other than by her married name, she goes by Mrs. De Winter. So, you might be asking, who's Rebecca? Well, without giving too much away, Rebecca is the former, now deceased, wife of her husband, Maxim De Winter. She looms, Rebecca does, in the background of the story, almost ghost-like, consuming the new Mrs. De Winter's mind, tempting her, challenging her, Rebecca is an example of a potentially misleading title. Without reading it, you might assume that Rebecca is the name of the protagonist, the main speaking voice. But in reality, Rebecca never appears in the present storyline. And she only speaks from the past in flashbacks. But yet her presence in the book is so strong. So where am I going with all of this? Well, I said at the beginning that the practice of naming books after main characters is a biblical one, ancient. And today we find ourselves in one of those such books. The question is, is the title true to the protagonist of the story? In other words, whose story is it? Of course, your first answer may well very well may very well be Ruth. Ruth is, after all, the titular character. When we understand it that way, we read the story of Ruth, focusing on Ruth. We call attention to her loyalty at the end of chapter 1, when she declares her intentions to cling to Naomi. Beyond our passage that we read this morning, we focus how she takes initiative in chapter 2, to seek out food for her and Naomi by gleaning in the fields around Bethlehem. We see her resourcefulness, her kindness, in her willingness to share with her mother-in-law. We see her bravery in chapter 3, when in the dark of night, which would be a perilous journey for any woman in the ancient world, she goes to Boaz seeking his help. And we see the blessing offered to her by the people of Bethlehem in chapter 4. Ruth is a risk taker. She's a woman with real gumption, a woman of worth, and eshet chayil. Someone who stands up for what she believes. Ruth is faithful. She's faithful to her mother-in-law. She's faithful to Boaz. She's faithful to the people of Israel. Ruth is a significant and inspiring character. My daughter's middle name is Ruth. So, I like Ruth. Indeed, with Ruth as the main character, it's easy to see the goodness, the faithfulness, 
It's easy to see the positive outcomes, the blessings. It's easy to receive them, and to model our own lives faithfully and kindlessly, kindly and courageously as Ruth. But, but what if the book of Ruth is a misnomer? What if, like Rebecca, the title is a bit misleading? Ruth is a central figure in the book, and we see her actions clearly and admirably. But what if the story is not really her story? What if we read this as Naomi's story? Now let's walk through this for a minute. At the very outset of chapter 1, we're introduced to Naomi's family. In verses 1 and 2, we hear about Elimelech, whose wife is named Naomi, and we meet their two sons. But then, in verse 3, there's a shift. Groundbreaking, life-altering shift. And the story shifts to Naomi's perspective. It is her husband who dies. And it stays with her perspective moving forward. As we read the rest of chapter 1, the point of view is very much Naomi's. At the end of chapter 1, it reads, Thus Naomi returned, with Ruth almost sort of mentioned as an afterthought. Oh yeah, right, Ruth was with her. And although much of the action in the narrative belongs to Ruth, chapters 2 and 3 begin and end with Naomi. The whole narrative, the whole book is in fact framed by Naomi's perspective. Naomi actually has the most to say in the narrative. Her speech is longer, more frequent than anyone else. And finally, at the end of chapter 4, when Ruth was given birth to Obed and all things seem resolved, the final scene has Naomi taking the child and holding him, becoming a guardian. The women of the neighborhood even say a son has been born to Naomi. Of course, we know that Ruth is the biological mother of the baby, but by placing Naomi in this position in the story, it, among other things, assures us readers that we leave the story with Naomi on our minds. So there's a good argument to be made here that this is Naomi's story. And when we read it as Naomi's story, we change how we hear it, how we hear the struggle, and how we hear the blessings. If we read the story as Naomi's, we feel her sadness. We feel her anger, her fear and doubt. We feel her bitterness. To read the book as Naomi's story means that we must dwell a bit longer on these feelings. And that makes us uncomfortable. Perhaps that's why we're so eager all the time to shift our attention to Ruth. We're uncomfortable with Naomi's grief. We squirm at her harsh tone and bitter outlook. Instead, we cling to Ruth, just as Ruth clings to Naomi. We want to make this Ruth's story, because with Ruth, while there is still grief and there is still struggle, it's easier and it feels better to see her determination, her commitment, her loyalty, her joy. But for now, let's see this as Naomi's story. Let's listen. Let's hear what she has to teach us about ourselves about grief, about God, and about blessings. 
Now, it's important to know when we read the book of Ruth that it carries with it an established theology, a particular belief system about God and how God relates to the world. It's implicit and explicit in the book, the way that the author has written this story down. It speaks to biblical truths that we see in other books, like Deuteronomy. It's fair to say that a Deuteronomic theology underpins the entire narrative. What is that? Well, basically, the belief that obedience to God leads to blessing, while disobedience results in curse. Anything bad that happens must be the fault, the sin of the person. And, moreover, a faith-filled belief that God hears and cares for the people of Israel. An assurance of divine providence undergirds the story. And it's important we know this because we can assume that these theological assumptions were foundational for Naomi as well. But from the very start of the book, those beliefs which are upheld and affirmed by the likes of Boaz and the others in the narrative, they are challenged from Naomi's perspective. In other words, and from her point of view, Naomi's life experiences are not matching up with what she has received as an understanding, a belief about how God works in the world. Within the first chapter, she makes this quite clear. She doesn't admit guilt. Did you notice that? She never says, oh, what have I done? While some may read into the story reasons that could account for her misfortune, she settled in enemy territory in Moab, for example. They're not named in the story by her or by anyone else. Ratherly, she openly says that God's will has come out against her, that God has returned her empty to Bethlehem, that she's been deemed guilty in the eyes of God, and she's not sure why. She's got words with God. Before, though, we condemn her for such harsh speech, she's not the only one in the Bible who's got words with God. There are others who have made such complaints. Job and Jeremiah come to mind. They have also aired their grievances. But while they made complaints to God, she makes hers about God. She keeps her distance from God. She doesn't directly address God. Perhaps her anger and frustration is so great, she can't even bear to look at God right now. In a sense, she gives God the cold shoulder. And before we condemn her for that, let's pause. You see, such is the disconnect that she feels between what is supposed to be and what is. This chasm makes the end of the story all the more significant. You can see this struggle that she feels when she tries to convince her daughters-in-law to return to their own ancestral homes after the death of her two sons. In verses 8 and 9, she offers what appears to be a blessing. Perhaps there is still a thread of hope within her. 
Our English translations certainly try to cling to that hope. See, they, they smooth out what in reality in the ancient biblical Hebrew is actually a very ragged couple of sentences. First, in verse 8, she makes a surprising claim. She says, may the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. Sounds okay. But when we read behind, between the lines, what Naomi is asking is that her daughters-in-law's actions might serve as a model for God, whose actions thus far in her experience have contradicted the understanding. She says, my daughters-in-law have acted and dealt faithfully. Maybe they'll be a model for you, God. We see this once again, how she perceives her relationship with God. We see that it's threadbare, raw. And complications continue into the next verse, in which in the Hebrew, the sentence cuts off, begins again quite abruptly. Again, the English translations smooth this over. You never see that there's a problem here. It's as if, though, Naomi changes her mind midway. And we don't see the disruption in our translations. One interpreter renders it this way. May the Lord give to you, forget it, find rest, each one of you. Her uncertainty in the blessing is clear. Her perspective is shifting. And it plays out in chapters 2 and 3 when it's Naomi herself who will find rest for Ruth. So by the end of chapter 1, it's clear to see. Naomi is struggling to accept things the way they are. and She's pushing back. And it's important to hear it, to see her, and to heed her. To read the book of Ruth as Naomi's story is to linger in her grief, to accept her anger and her frustration, to tarry with her and Ruth. Silent, resigned, burdened, on the road to Bethlehem. She is so upset in this moment that she says, My name, Naomi, which in Hebrew means pleasant or sweet, no longer fits. She is Mara, bitter. Disney Pixar has been really great at digging into feelings. It's been praised by parents and therapists and pastors alike as a wonderful film that celebrates the myriad feelings we have. The film is inside out. It anthropomorphizes the feelings of a young girl almost asking the question of what if feelings had feelings? In one scene, uh, the young girl who holds these feelings, Riley, has an imaginary friend named Bing Bong. In her mind, Bing Bong becomes distraught, fearing that Riley is forgetting him. The anthropomorphized joy quickly attends to him, trying to make Bing Bong laugh, trying to get him up and moving. Nothing seems to work. Then comes the feeling sadness. She is blue. She has glasses. She talks like this. She sits down next to Bing Bong. 
listening to him, reminisce, lending a shoulder when he finally breaks down crying. To read the book of Ruth as Naomi's story is to read like sadness. It's to hold space for grief and doubt without condemnation. To listen to a story and not try to fix it as Joy does in the movie. When we see grief and anger, especially when that anger is directed at God, we cling to the you'll be fines, things will get better soon. We try to extinguish the fiery rage of anger that grief brings. We're eager to put out the flames of the unfairness of it all. But Naomi's story doesn't stifle the flame. It accepts it. It holds those feelings even as it moves forward. It's significant that following Ruth's commitment to Naomi at the end of chapter 1, Naomi says nothing. No thank you. No please, yes, walk with me. She says nothing. Her grief and her struggles don't go away just because someone is there with her. And Ruth's statement wasn't about making Naomi forget her grief. It was a way of standing in solidarity with it. In chapter 2, when Ruth returns with gleaming, gleanings from the field and with favor from Boaz, Naomi gives praise to Boaz's generosity, not God's. Given the truncated blessing that she attempted to offer in chapter 1, it's significant that Naomi seeks rest and security for Ruth in chapter 3. Her grief, her questions, her doubts are still present in her mind and playing out in her actions. Most importantly, when the story concludes, when blessings abound in marriage, children for both women, when Obed, Obed, her grandchild, is placed in her arms, Naomi says nothing. We frequently encounter stories of struggle, loss, and redemption. Those stories often end with main characters repenting for their doubts, giving thanks, praising God. At the end of this story, Naomi is still silent. Is it doubt? Is it unfaithfulness? No, it's reality. It's a story that meets people where they are, in between grief and joy. To read the book of Ruth as Naomi's story means that we honor the grief as it is, the complexity of it. Again, the movie Inside Out shows this perfectly. At the end of the movie, true healing begins for Riley, the little girl who, at a very young age, is beginning to deal with depression. When the sadness is joy and Sadness, when the feelings of joy and sadness come together. Joy doesn't replace the sadness. The sadness is not forgotten, overlooked, or dismissed. Rather, we see something different, something in between, something we might call bittersweet. Remember in chapter 1, Naomi, whose name means something like bitter or sweet, or pleasant or sweet, 
told the women to call her Mara. In the end, the woman of the story has become both. She is Naomi Mara, bitter sweet. To read the book of Ruth as Naomi's story also means acknowledging and upholding her understanding of God. Her theology, it's one that embraces questions, even leaves open space for anger and frustration. And hers is a theology of partnering. And this is where Ruth comes in, but not in the way that we think. Ruth doesn't rescue Naomi. Ruth partners with Naomi, does not contradict her. For all of her gumption and resolve, Ruth doesn't challenge or try to fix Naomi. Ruth shows us how to walk alongside others in grief, how to partner with others, how to live faithfully in all times. And Naomi, in her grief, partners with Ruth to find security, to go about finding that bittersweet joy for themselves. When we read the book of Ruth as Naomi's story, we come to celebrate the ways in which we can care for one another when the world seems to be crashing down around us. Even, especially when we have doubts, frustrations, angers, and griefs. Throughout the narrative, Ruth and Naomi Mara cling to one another. Ruth doesn't talk Naomi out of her grief. She's simply there. She shows up with the ancient version of a casserole, barley gleanings. And however we might read Naomi's silence in response to Ruth in chapter 1, Naomi partners with Ruth. Throughout the rest of the story, both of them are women of worth. And the narrative, narrative honors both of their experiences. I don't know about you, but these days I give thanks for a biblical story that honors grief, blesses questions. Grief doesn't leave us behind when good things happen. The good news of the book of Ruth is that blessings can still come whether we are ready to acknowledge them or not. Reading this story as Naomi's, we feel her sadness. We feel her anger, her doubt. We feel the bitterness. But we also feel that fragile hope that trepidatious joy. Blessings can still come even when we are in the midst of grief, in the throes of anger, even when that anger is directed at God. When we are consumed by questions, when the world isn't working like we think it should. Naomi's story also teaches us that if we're not ready to acknowledge the blessings that do come, that's okay. Naomi's story resounds these days, with grief abounding, with frustrations mounting. Give thanks today for Naomi's story, for Mara's story. 
Give thanks for a story that proclaims it's okay if you're not okay. A story that celebrates how we care for one another, even and especially when we are having a hard time finding God in it all. A story that teaches us that there is grace enough, love enough, blessing enough. Thanks be to Ruth. Thanks be to Naomi. Thanks be to Mara. And thanks be to God.